0: This is a strange series that came to mind. I was reading the one day, and I felt God saying, eight, 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 eight. And it was just a a random thing in my my Bible reading plan where I read Mark 8 and then Romans 8. And uh, I've said it before, but I think I am completely crazy because I've never seen a, a Bible series or preaching series put together like this. But I think God is showing us something. Because I was meditating just on the number eight. And I saw this picture of just the overlapping circles like this, creating an eight. And I, I'm not big into this, but the, the symbolism of um, eight and the, the number means it's like a new week. You think there's seven days. Eight is the start of something new. We did Matthew 5 to 7, and it's the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus giving his teaching. And then eight is the next steps of actually how we step into this. So there's something of new beginnings, a new week, it's next steps, it's, that's what it is. And I think God is speaking to us as a church, because he's, he's laid foundations, and we've grown a little bit, but now we're at a, a, a strange phase. And I, I was speaking to somebody, and I, I felt like God was saying that we're almost like a teenager. And Teenagers are, are, are awkward, it's the, the size doesn't quite fit, they're not sure how they fit in their, their previous role, and they're not sure how they fit in the new role, and there's sometimes an awkwardness to it, but there's a challenge for us to actually step into the fullness of what God has for us. And the other thing I want to do is, with eights, it's, we're going to go through various chapters of books, so we're going to go through Chapter Eight of One Corinthians today and then Chapter Eight of Matthew, maybe next week and through that we're going to get a quick, broad overview of the New Testament and try and put it in context and get an idea of what those verse those books are actually saying to us. Then, as I was meditating on it, I had just the picture of the eight flipping on its side, and I, I just saw a picture of this is new lenses for us to look through and I read two incredible books. One is misreading scripture through Western eyes and misreading scripture through individualistic eyes. And there's so much that we can actually read the Bible and we're looking at it from our perspective and we don't see God's perspective. We don't see somebody else's perspective. So I'm hoping that each one of these sermons, each part of this series is actually going to give us a new lens to look through. We went through John 8 in December and there's a picture of the lens of truth coming in and God says, if you're my disciples and you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And there's a lens of truth coming where in spite of all the distortion in the world, despite all the confusion, God wants to bring truth into our lives. And today there's a lens of humility. So that truth can lead to arrogance and confidence and overconfidence. So we're going to look into that today. That was the picture that I got where if you go to the optometrist, there's it's almost they'll bring like multiple different lenses and they'll ask you, can you see now? Can you see now? And It's the picture of like God saying um, when Jesus brings healing to the blind man. He's like, can you see now? He's like, I can see men, but they, they kind of look like trees. And there's something of God has saved us. He's set us free. He's brought us into this new place, this new picture. But I'm not sure we're seeing exactly the way he wants us to see. And so there's a challenge to actually confront those views, confront those ways we've looked at the world, confront the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at each other, and like reinterpret what, what the challenges are, what God has for us and what he has for you. And then I was going to start with this picture of just the most incredible fruit. But this fruit is in like a Hindu shrine, and it's been offered as like a sacrifice to God. How many of you would eat that fruit? Put your hands up if you would. Some people? Okay, great. So, I know a strange question. Because I was chatting to Michelle around 1 Corinthians 8 and what, what God says in it, and we'll get to it just now. But she had that when she was growing up. There was always a room in the house that was a place of prayer. And in there, you would you'd take some of their best fruit and their best gifts and their, what they had, and they would use it as an offering. And she always, she always said, like, as a kid, she looked at it and was like, man, I really want that fruit. But God was already moving in her life, and so she was, she was not sure whether she was allowed to or not. Has that, had that fruit been tainted? Is there something strange about it? Am I compromising in having this fruit? So we'll get to why that's important. Because every verse in a Bible, we might, I don't know how often you guys read your Bible, I hope it's often. But the reality is every verse, um, what is this saying? Every text without context is a pretext for a proof text. So Don Carson says. So every text that we approach, if we open it up and we read it and it's like, wow, that sounds nice or that sounds terrible. If we don't understand the context that it's in, we can misinterpret it and we can open it up and we, that's where we can get Verses that tell us, man, you're going to be rich and you're going to be successful. If you just come back to God, everything will work out. It doesn't quite work like that. Because those promises were contextual for the people of God. The overarching nature of God does not change. But you can't just take a promise that was meant for somebody else and apply it to you. The same God, the same character is there. So you can understand what his character was like. But you have to understand how we fit into the big story of God. And that's the story of history. And it doesn't account for absolutely everything, so I'm not going to give you a scientific like, explanation of where we come from, but the Bible talks about God creating us, and then there's a fall. And then he reaches out, and he speaks to the patriarchs, and he, he calls Abraham, and then he calls them to be a people, and he starts showing his love for the Israelite people, and he makes them into a nation, that's through the Exodus. And then there's a conquest, and all of the, the, the Israelite history, and then we get to the New Testament. I actually wanted to draw this in on like a line where it's actually everything's going down and down and down and down and down. And then Jesus steps in and then we start moving up again. And I realized that exposed my like perception of the context. Because I don't know if it is all down and down and down. Because God starts where there's a fall and then he starts speaking to us. And it actually from that moment it's already starting to go up. Because God is starting to work in us and work in his people and he's starting to speak to us and he's starting to show us what he is like and that perception of everything's going downhill until jesus and then it starts taints our view of the old testament and i just i was confronted when i did that and i realized like actually we we look um politically and a lot of people describe themselves as progressives and it's It comes from Christianity because it comes from a worldview where we are progressing to something better. We are making progress from where we used to be to where we will be one day. Doesn't necessarily mean the way we we always try and make that happen is the best thing. But we are making progress because there is a desired future that God is taking us to. And he's inviting us to actually partner with him. And then, do you realize the time like in history that we actually live in? I was listening just to some stats that they basically, they, they, um, they've worked it out that there are believers in every nation on the world at the moment. It is the first time in history where that's ever been. They, they believe that the last translation of the Bible is going to start in 2025. The Bible is going to be translated in almost every region, like dialect, it's like, it's not going to be perfect but there's going to be a bible for everybody that is actually illiterate. That that's the times we're living in. There's a restoration of Israel. I don't know what your your vision of the future is and I'm not going to like prescribe that. We can get into like easy disagreements there and we'll get onto that later. But the reality is God is moving. And so much of the world is telling us this is the worst time to be alive and there's so many people and they're the problem. No, this is the best time to be alive. Firstly, because God chose you to be alive now. There is no other option. The best way to actually look at it is saying God chose me to be alive in this day and age. What do you have for me? Anything more than that, we're wasting our mental energy, but we can actually look at it and say, God, you have a plan for me. You have a hope. You have a future. You have a hope and a future for our country. You have a hope and a future for my family. What are you asking me to do? How can I partner with you? King, um, Quibus used this the other day. I changed it a little bit, but it's borrowed from the, the Bible project, where... There's a picture of the kingdom and helping us understand how the age to come is impacting this time at the moment. And you start seeing it. I just love Venn diagrams. So, I'm such a nerd. But you see the kingdom starts impacting. And where we start overlapping, we see the church. And there's a reality that the kingdom is far bigger than just the church. But the church is the embassy of the kingdom in the world where we can function in a whole different culture to what's around us to be a witness to them so we can actually function as the way that we build a community the way that we interact with people becomes this representation and as we love each other then they say what's different about you why do you love people like that how can you love sacrificially how can you have hope for the future where what is it built upon and the reality is we can have hope. We can have a belief that everything can be turned around, that everything can be tra- changed because we have seen God transform us, transform our hearts, transform our lives, and even answer prayer. So, 1 Corinthians. So I'm obviously, that obviously makes sense to everybody. That's a, it's a slight overview of the book of 1 Corinthians. That's from Bible Project. If you want to watch, they probably have a far better summary of th- just the book and the breakdown of, of how it works. So, Paul is writing to a church that he started and he's been away from them. They've obviously been writing letters back and forth and he's asking them, they're asking him questions. What about this? How are we supposed to do this? A lot of it is how do we function as a, as a church? How do we operate? How do we let some gifts operate? These people are doing some crazy things. These people are sleeping around. What, what does it look like? What's okay? What's not okay? And then one of them is what food are we allowed to eat? There's a major section from 8 to 10 that's talking about food that's been offered to idols. And it's like, does that even matter for us today? So you might open your Bible and we read 1 Corinthians 8 and it doesn't make sense to you. But the major overarching thing you can see in this, it's broken down into a couple of answers. Like each one of these sections is a question that's been asked and then... Paul writes to them, and he defines the the question, and he defines the problem, and then he applies the gospel to it, and he gives them an answer to it. So I want to just zoom in. This is 8 to 10, specifically, where it's talking about how we use the rights that we've got, how we use the truth that we've got to actually love each other. And I hope you guys are ready for it, but I'm going to read the whole of 8 to 10. The reason I want to read all of these chapters is actually to just help you see that you can do this. This is not a, hey, Andrew's the guy who does this, or whoever's up here. It doesn't require expert knowledge, but it does require some intention to go and understand what what does the book look like? How how does it break down? How does it work out? And then you put it in context and we can read this. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all... possess knowledge knowledge puffs up but love builds up the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know but the man who loves god is known by god so then about food sacrifice to idols we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no god but one for even if there are so called gods whether in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords yet for us there is but one god the father for whom all things came and from whom, uh, from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since, before, uh, since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have their knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way, And wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fail. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the results of my work in the Lord? Even though I am not an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? As do the other apostles, the Lord's brother and Cephas. Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. It is about the oxen that God is concerned. Surely, he says for this, for, for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritually seed, spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is alt- offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I did not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily I am simply discharging the trust committed to me what then is my reward just this that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make any or make use of my rights in preaching it I'm going to skip on to the end of chapter 10 so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all for the glory of God do not cause anyone to stumble whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The reason I wanted to read a large section there is to show you that Paul knew that he had rights. He says, I can take a wife along. He's like, actually, my work, its like I believe it should be rewarded in, in God. It's like, I've sown spiritually. I have the right to actually reap financially, basically. And he's saying, but I give up all of that because I love you so much. You can see his love overpowering his actual needs. And then I want to take us back to just the start. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. An amazing thing in this verse is that the people that were eating food were right. They knew that God was God, and the food offered to these idols meant nothing. But even in the fact that they were right, even though they had the truth, even though they they had a strong conscience, what they did with their truth Cause division and a cause broken, and it hurts other people, and I want us to have a look at that because the reality is that knowledge just puffs up, and I want to get back to my Venn diagrams because when I was thinking about it is we have these fights in church and disagreements and wrestles, and it 's like I think the church should be like this, I think it should be like this and I've wrestled with, how, how do we work this out, God? Because the more I learn about God, and the more I learn about theology, it's, it's something that I absolutely love. But the more I learn about it, the more I realize I don't know. <laughs> because the more I learn, I, I'm incredibly confident in I know who God is. But the less I'm certain I'll, I have all of the answers. And because of that, I need everybody else. And I need people to to carry their convictions with strength, but with incredible humility. And God is teaching me how to actually do this and how to lead with courage and confidence, but with humility, because he's teaching us all that. Because the reality is if I lead with humility and the people that are alongside us, we lead with courage, but arrogance, then those are going to try to dominate. And if I do the same, then I'm going to dominate over people. And then we miss out on the gifts that God has actually given us. Because I think this is a vision that we can actually have of church, where we've got different views, but where we overlap with God's vision, we can be completely unified. And where we differ, we can hold it with grace. And we can learn to share it and learn to share it like confidently. But I realized in this, what is the most dangerous places on this, this Venn diagram? It may seem like the dangerous places are the, are the places where we're completely wrong. And I realized actually that the most dangerous places in this is where we disagree, but we completely believe that we are right. And we don't approach it with Grace. Because that's a picture of this 1 Corinthians 8 where people are realizing that food offered to idols is nothing because God is God and I can do this. But in them knowing that this is what we should do and practicing in that way without love for each other, we can cause others to stumble and we can cause damage in the community that God is trying to build. The other area where I thought that it is incredibly dangerous is this part where we overlap, my vision and your vision overlaps. And we are certain that we're right but it isn't the way that god wants it and i think that's where god wants to give us new lenses and those are the hard aspects because those are the places where we've got ingrained patterns of doing life and doing church and it's like of course it's right it's the way i've done it for 30 years even more than that it's the way the church has done it for 2000 years so we must be right and god's saying what if i want to change that now I'm not arrogant enough to say that, like, man, I've got those answers, but what if God is trying to bring unity in the church which we haven't seen for over a thousand years? We we can say, Man, of course we need to find a church that believes exactly the same as us so that we can do this confidently. No, what if we have to do it what if we have to build a church where I know that I disagree with a lot of people here around secondary issues. Been listening to somebody and he's talking about it where we can we can recognise believers in other churches, but we can't share communion with them. Because they ah, that's the Catholic Church and that's the Orthodox Church, and then we're Protestants. like our identity, our label is built upon a protest. We're actually we, we, we're stepping aside and saying what what the church is doing there is wrong. And we've inherited that identity and that, that posture of protest. And that's what's leading to divide after divide after divide after divide. And we get into a church where it's like, man, I don't agree with what's being said. I've said my piece. I am right. They are wrong. I'm leaving. Sounds crazy because we've planted a church in the last year. And it's like, is that wrong then? I don't believe so. I believe God is stirring something. And I I believe God was in the Protestant Reformation. And he he did something to restore the Bible and restore scripture. And it was centered around the printing press that allowed the Bible to be in individuals' hands. And it allowed for the rising up of the priesthood of all believers. Because we are far stronger together when everybody has their conviction than what I am on my own. What then? What leaders are on their own? Of just the priest knows, and we are in the midst of another revolution in the same way with the internet that has instantly connected the entire world, and I believe that is radically transforming society. And the church is figuring out how to deal with that, and we are in the midst of figuring out how to do, deal with that. And at the same time, we've got generations that are divided culturally. The generations are incredibly divided, more than I think ever in all of history. Because with the internet, we can be connected with people that are like-minded to ourselves. You can find somebody, it doesn't matter what your niche is, your age demographic, what you're interested in, you can find somebody on the internet that is just like you. In the past, you were stuck in your community, in your culture, and you made it work. In your church, there wasn't a way for you to find the church that was perfectly designed for you. You went to the local church and you made it work. And yet we've experimented with with trying to find something that perfectly suits us. And we've become more and more polarized when God wants to actually do what my dad said. He wants to bring us back to unity and find a way where we can actually be committed and surrounded and centered around the same thing. And I think the only thing powerful enough to draw us together is the Trinity. That's why I say Trinity Central. Actually, when we put God at the center of our lives, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we we learn to to, to put that in in the center of our lives and revolve our lives around that, the more that we can find unity around the things that really matter. So that's partly my picture where it's like, actually, if we can learn to see that the expression of church that we've got is different to everything that I might want. And that's a good thing. And it's going to be different to what you might want. And we need to learn to relate to each other and build like a bridge of love that can actually sustain our disagreements where we can learn to engage with people that are very different to us, age-wise, career-wise, like approach our language. Our, everything can be completely different. But when we center around God, those things... They fade into insignificance and they become colourful like decorations for what God is actually doing rather than the means for us to disagree and to divide. It's another one like my brain works in strange ways when I'm when I'm thinking and dreaming about what God is saying to us in this one Corinthians eight where it's talking about actually our knowledge like puffs up but our love can like build us up. And this is a picture of the Trinity where, well, it's a symbol that represents the Trinity, where there's three unique lines that are exactly the same, but then when they combine, they create one unity. And it's something it's hard to explain, and I can't perfectly describe how the Trinity works. I was on holiday this um, past December, and I was chatting to a Muslim guy in, in the pool, by like random chance and he was asking me like what what separates christianity from islam it's like i don't understand this because jesus is god but he's not god and so we had a long chat and on the back of that i actually started reading the quran just to engage with people that are different to me and to have ways of actually talking to them to understand what is your belief built upon why do you believe so differently to me And anyway, there's there's a lot that comes from that. But in this picture of the Trinity, I had this picture that came to mind. Where the incredible part of God's relationship to us is He invites us into His fellowship. Where it talks about in 1 John, where actually we are invited into fellowship with God. Where we are called to become like Him. Where Paul says, actually imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's ridiculous to say that. But that's the incredible privilege that God gives us. In Orthodox theology, it's um, Yeah, they've got fancy names for it. I'm reminded of a story where the, the, the preacher was discussing like his message with his wife, and she's like, Ah, honey, don't try and sound smart, just be yourself. And I'm like, that that, that sounds like me. I think that's Michelle's like, oh, don't worry, just be yourself. You don't need to try and sound smart. But this, this is the picture that we are invited into. We're invited into like this divine dance. And it's just a strange picture for me that I don't know where you guys are at. I don't know how you relate to God, how you're relating to church. You might have issues. You might have differences with us. You might have frustrations. But I'm hoping you actually remember this picture. That God is inviting you into a divine dance that has gone on for all eternity past and is going to go on for all eternity future. And the reality is I'm standing in front of you and I think as ridiculous as it may sound is I may still be seeing you in 100 years' time, in 200 years' time, in 300 years' time. And think of who we're going to become. Because God is promising us eternal life. And he says, I want you to know me, because knowing me is what's important. If we go back to the verse, it says, like, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Actually, going to go back. Let's just scroll through them all. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Not just you can know God, but God actually knows you. You think of this, like anybody that's incredibly famous. Like, you, you might say that, ah, oh, I know that famous person. But when you actually say that they know you, that's a whole nother story. Where that important person knows you. And then it is God we're talking about. So that we don't, it's not talking about knowing an idea of God. We know like, truths about Him. We know theories about God. We actually know the person of God. And the amazing thing is not just that, that the person of who God is, God the Father, Jesus knows us. He knows you by name. And He wants to build you up to a place where that knowledge that He has given us, that truth that He has given us, overflows in love that builds us up as a community. Last thing, I, there was a story of um, I was listening to a preacher on this and he was discussing just the story of how he was out ministering and he saw these incredible young guys, they were, they were ministering and starting his church and he's like, tell me about yourself and he's like, no, uh, the reason I'm here is all down to Vaughan my youth pastor. And it's like, oh, okay. He chats to the next guy, and he's like, no, the only reason I'm here is because of Vaughn, my youth pastor. And he's like, wow. He chats to the third guy, and he's like, don't tell me you also, yeah, because of Vaughn. He's like, no, 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 I'm not. But I know Vaughn. And Vaughn is the type of guy, he ministers in Mexico, and he goes into the slums, and he walks, and he meets all the kids that have been abandoned there, and he just loves them. And he walks with him the whole day and he says, like, actually, walking with Vaughn and the way he loved these kids and provided for them. And he tried to get showers for them and care for them. he says, you know what? Walking with Vaughn was a lot like walking like Jesus. He felt like it was just this strange picture of, I can imagine this is what it would be like to walk alongside Jesus. As he stopped in his day and he saw this person that was serving him coffee and he stopped at this person and he said, what can I do for you? And he stopped and he said, how are you? Imagine walking through every single day. Imagine just walking into church with that perspective of like, actually, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? Imagine our community was overflowing in love like that. And I think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I can't say that yet, but I, I want to want to say that. I want to say, like, imitate me as I try and imitate Paul, who's trying to imitate Christ. Like, that's, that's at least the goal, where I want to carry that love for each other. And we might disagree on how to do church, and but I want to invite you into carrying this seriously, taking your spiritual walk seriously, just investigating, like, Is this what God is saying? Is this possible? Like last week, I said, maybe we've bumped up against that glass and we don't believe this is possible of church anymore. And we've come to believe a lie. And I think God wants to give us a new lens to say, you know what? This is my answer to the world. Is that you would be transformed. And by doing that, your community will be transformed. And by doing that, your businesses will be transformed. I was chatting to somebody and they they said... South Africa has to go through the disillusionment of government. And there's something true to that because we keep looking to somebody else to solve our problems. And we we keep looking at it and it's like, those people need to go through disillusionment of not me. We think other people need to go through that disillusionment because we love to think that other people are the problem. But the reality is, All that we can control is ourselves. And what we need to do is we need to build the answer for our nation. We need to build the answer for the world. We partner with God and we build What's going to be the solution? As we build a community that actually loves each other and cares for each other and starts businesses and starts caring for the needs of our community, that can become a model that can overflow into more and more and more people's lives and more and more and more businesses and more and more transformation in our nation. And as we learn to trust God, we can pray for transformation. Like we prayed last week and I mean, I flippantly said it in a preach saying, God, I long for the day where we will have live worship here. One week later, God has answered. Might not be every single week, but we will see how God is going to grow what He is doing here. So Lord, I want to thank You for what You have started. I thank You for this community. I thank You for the fact that You are weaving a tapestry through this. That You are bringing unity where there used to be division you bring unity where there used to be even just diversity lord but you are you are weaving that beautiful picture of diversity into a tapestry for your glory where you'll be glorified by our lives you'll be glorified by this church by this community you will be glorified by the way that we live in our day-to-day lives thank you for warren's boldness to, to pray for our nation and to express his desire for transformation, Lord. I thank you for Quibba's practicing of a gift in private that can bless us in public, Lord. I pray that you would show each and every person how they can take one next step, put on a new lens of humility, and see how I can use the truth that God has revealed to me to build up those alongside me. I think it's easy to try and write it off that it's uh my life revolves around church, so you you can be passionate about church, but it's not what I, what my life's about. I got my own thing church kind of fulfills a certain need, but I want to challenge that because you you can't be a christian unless you connect it to a local church you can be a christian, but you you yeah, I heard an incredible statement this week that life is a team sport. You cannot win on your own. That you, can't, you can't succeed on your own because we're made to be connected to each other. And church is the community that's an expression of what should be the deepest reality of who you are. And you don't need to carry it in the same way I do. We've got different roles and different functions. But my encouragement to you is, is to carry it deeply. And I hope that this vision gives you a way and an understanding of, of holding on to, actually, that is what I'm certain of, that I agree with, with Andrew. And it sounds like weird, but actually, Andrew's vision of church, I can see it overlapping with God's vision of church. And because of that, I can be convinced of it. There's parts where Andrew's got it wrong, But he knows that he's got it wrong and that's where it takes like humility for us to actually come and carry this together and learn how to do this and communicate it in that way and that gives you a a way of approaching this absolutely wholeheartedly because i can't force you to view it the way that i do but i invite you to and hopefully you'll do the same and together As we do that, we'll find more and more unity as we're drawn closer to God's vision of church. So God, I I ask that you'll just show us, Lord, that there's a picture of actually taking off your your shoes or kneeling is just a sign of humility, God, where we say, God, you would show us what you want for us. You would show us what you want for your church, that you would show us just give us new lenses that we would see people differently. We would see church differently. We would see the world differently. We'd see those around us differently. We would see potential in them. We would see the the people that they could become in a thousand years time. It sounds strange to think that, but if we think about that we are created for eternity, you want to give us an eternal life, the gift of eternal life. You want to actually transform us and change us and give us a bigger picture than what we've ever had before a new perspective i said you would do that god we can't do this we cannot force this we ask that you would move